You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about class, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Stephen. Um, yeah, Stephen Shapansky of Radio Friscaro. Welcome back to the Blue Box Podcast. How many times have I been on the Blue Box Podcast? It's more never... times, more times than I've been on Radio Friscaro. I can tell you that. <laughs> because... Which you were just on, yep. Well, because we just discovered, didn't we, that I've been on three times. Yes. Well, we've. Well, this is your third time, if we only include. No, you've done actually three missing episodes podcasts, haven't you, on Blue Box? I, I have, alone, three visits, and then I was on yeah. a couple of quiz episodes, as I recall. Yeah, and a couple of other things, too, I think. So, I don't know, this might be like your eighth or ninth or something. Goodness me, I've I'll lost to... count. Do you know what, though? Mm-hmm. I was listening to the latest Radio Free Scarrow this morning, and you were reviewing class, and then you did a bit more news, and then at the end, you said... And next week, we have, like, a double feature. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, a review of class and something else. And you said, yes, we're going to have a review of class, and then after the review of class, we've got something else. And I thought, oh, that's exciting, I wonder what that could be. And then you said, we'll be diving back into the miniscope. And I thought, hang on, this sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> and then you said, we'll be talking about... Jerry Davis and Kit Pedler, and I suddenly thought, oh, that's why it's familiar, because that was actually with me. <laughs> we just recorded it, like yeah. two or three days before that, yeah. And I'd completely forgotten. <laughs> Goodness. That's a little bit embarrassing, really, isn't it? Well, this, is that... why, yeah, this, is why, this is why I don't remember how many times I've been on the Blue Box podcast. Yeah, yeah. You don't, he, you've been on three times at RFS, and you don't even remember them. Even when I've only just recorded it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but until it comes out, you don't think it's real. <laughs> yes, it's, it's 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 a dream up until that point, JR. Yeah, yeah. A weird but, fevered dream. Yeah, but then of course as well, sometimes you record things that aren't due out for weeks. So I Oh just, I know. Yeah, because yeah. we've we've done a, that a lot on RFS, especially with commentaries, uh, you know, just to sort of bank them and, and sort of work ahead a little bit. And then when the, the time comes, you know, we'll get listeners sort of like, Oh, I like this when you said this that you know, about that on the commentary. I think that was literally Eight weeks ago, yeah. I have no memory of what you're talking about. I did one, and it was six weeks, I think, in between recording and it going out. Mm-hmm. Anyway, should we talk about some other stuff? Yes, let's. <laughs> let's do that. Should we? Uh, well, first of all, let me ask you what you think about the idea of an animated Power of the Daleks. Well, I, I'm... Sure, I've mentioned this on other podcasts and perhaps other media. Well, but... I was going to say, for anybody who's listening to this who hasn't heard you talking about it on Radio Free Scarrow, which is probably about 1% of our listenership. <laughs> well, maybe more. Um, I, I, I am very much a fan of the, the recon that they put out, the, the one and only MP3 CD. Um, the version that uh, had some spectacular, um, you know, up- upgraded soundtrack and the sort of, you know, all telesnap thing with the, uh, I-, I think they used the, uh, the moving clips and they're surely they did. I don't think they did actually. Cause I, I have a feeling 
that the moving parts would have made the program too complicated for the technology they had at the time. Oh, I see. Okay. Well, and I guess I've watched an augmented version then. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's still excellent and breathtaking, and I I adored it when I first watched it. And I thought, wow, this immediate—if I was to have a top ten Doctor Who stories of all time, I think I would throw this one at number three. I was just blown away by it, and so perhaps because I hold, you know, that version so near and dear to me that I I find I have a hard time accepting an animated version. The Ooh. you know I I think I'm more of a fan of the Telesnap recons than I am the animated. I know that makes me a rarity, but well, I there, don't think it, it does. Okay. Are there others? Are there yeah, others like me? Well, judging by what you read on the forums and on social media now, I'd say it's roughly 50-50. Interesting. I think so. Although I would say that people who like the animations are less likely to also like the telesnaps, whereas people who like the telesnaps will, generally speaking, apart from a hardcore few, also give the animation a go. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose if you want to enjoy the story, you know, as purely as or as, you know, um, without as as many impediments as possible, I yeah. suppose the animated version is the one to go for. Uh, I like to sort of, you know, when I watch a Doctor Who story, I like to sort of see what it would it would have looked like. And that's where the telesaps come in. I feel like there's there's one less layer of separation there between me, the viewer and, and what's actually going on. Um, and also, honestly, what, what I don't like about the animated ones is that it kind of says, well, if, if they've spent all that money to, to animate a missing episode, be it Power of the Dogs or Reign of Terror or Tenth Planet or something, it's kind of an admission that, yep, we are not going to find this episode, so this is the best we can get. So it's almost like a final nail in the coffin, you know? The fact that they, they're animating Power of the Daleks and making a big thing of it just sort of leads me to think that I guess that one's never going to be found again, is it? Yeah, that that is definitely one perspective. I've got to say, I don't entirely agree. Not in the case of Power of the Daleks, but only because... They're rushing this out for the anniversary. Mm -hmm. And to my mind, I don't think it makes any difference whether Phil Morris or anybody else has found it or not. If they couldn't get the real thing out for the anniversary, they'd say, OK, we'll have that in a year or in two years. Let's get something else out for the anniversary instead. Animate it quick. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it rules it out entirely, although obviously it does make it much less likely. But you know what? I am the opposite when it comes to telesnaps versus animation. When I'm watching something with telesnaps, I spend the entire time thinking, so what would this have looked like? How would this have moved? What kind of face would that guy be pulling there? And I lose the story. I don't follow the plot. Whereas when I'm watching an animation, an animation I'm not ever thinking, oh, I wonder what the actors would be doing. I'm literally just watching the story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it's... It's like six of one and half a dozen of the other, really, isn't it? I suppose. I mean, I'll still enjoy it. I'll still enjoy it for many. You know, I imagine a, a, you know, an initial viewing of the Telesnap version, just so I have the the real version, so to speak, in my yeah. head, and then I could sort of watch it again as animated. But for you know, I I am happy that 
you know, this does allow a more presentable version of what I think is probably the greatest Dalek story ever um, to an audience of, you know, not just people in the UK, but I was really impressed and surprised about uh, BBC America's enthusiasm with it, you know, not only airing it on TV, but also putting it in the theaters um, leading up to its uh, its TV de- debut and, you know, a whole generation of of people who might have only been weaned on the new series will be able to watch this uh very stylized looking animated version of a, of a missing Doctor Who show from 1966. It's quite something when you think about it. It's funny, the cinema thing, isn't it? Because, you know, uh, as as beautiful a job as those guys have no doubt done, this ain't Pixar. They've mm-hmm. not got Disney money working on this. So the, the cinema thing really, to my mind, is not so much this is worthy of being in the pictures. And, now, and this is not a criticism of what they've done, but to my mind, it's more of a, it's an excuse for people to get out and get together and have some fun watching it. Yeah. And, you know, it, it keeping Doctor Who in the public eye in a year where it has not yeah, been yeah. that is another thing to sort of do, you know, have a sort of a Doctor Who related event that the people around the country can, can sort of bond over, so to speak, because, you know, they might do this again for the premiere of Series 10. You never know. They've done it in the past. Yeah, so yeah. This, this sort of gives them uh, an excuse, I suppose. And close to Doctor Who Day. I, I know that doesn't mean as much, it seems, to um, BBC or BBC America since the 50th past. But, um, but you know, it, it's around that time of year. It always seems to be a little bit special when it comes to Doctor Who. So having something around the anniversary of that is kind of cool. Well, it's a nice coincidence that Power of the Daleks first broadcast in November, isn't it? It is, isn't it? It's Doctor Who month, November, isn't it? <laughs> I sort of look at it as that. I I pretty much say, okay, what am I going to be doing Doctor Who related? Even on the podcast, we sort of like in years past, we sort of think, well, what should we do for the episode that comes out around November 23rd? Probably do a little something extra special, you know? So, yeah. yeah. Well, I was going to use that as a nice segue to get into class. But before I do, I think we should have five minutes on the return of Doctor Mysterio. Ooh, Doctor Mysterio. Do you know what? I'm going to throw my... Every time there's a Christmas special or a new series coming up, I always throw out a wild theory. And as soon as you're sitting there, I'm going to throw my wild theory at you. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> my wild theory is this. Battlefield. I think... Well, no, I don't think... I, Half of me thinks there's a possibility that the return of Dr. Mysterio may take some plot beats from Battlefield. Now, usually when I throw these things out, I'm completely wrong. So I'm prepared, entirely prepared, to be proven completely wrong again, because we all know absolutely nothing about it. Mm -hmm. But I tell you what, the superhero guy, the big symbol on his chest, or on his belt, wherever it is, is a G. Right. So he's not Dr. Mysterio. And we all know that in Spanish, Dr. Who is Dr. Mysterio. So the yes. Doctor is Dr. Mysterio, right? Mm-hmm. So this superhero is in New York, and who's his arch nemesis? His arch nemesis is Dr. Mysterio. Has to be, doesn't it? So the Doctor turns up, the superhero recognises him and says, Dr. Mysterio, you've returned at last. And the Doctor says, Dr. Mysterio, who? This is not something that's happened in my past. It's happened in his future, just like the Seventh Doctor was Merlin in Battlefield's future. But knowing Stephen Moffat, I reckon, just like in A Christmas Carol, 
Towards the end of the episode, the Doctor will travel back in time and have the mini-adventure with this superhero chap that leads to him being known as Doctor Mysterio in the first place, and wouldn't that be just so Stephen Moffat to have one of these impossible paradoxes, where the reason why Doctor Mysterio is called Doctor Mysterio is because the superhero told him he was called Doctor Mysterio in the future, before he went back into the past and told the superhero that his name was Doctor Mysterio. <laughs> what do you think? Well, uh, I can't disprove that, knowing nothing <laughs> Not about it. So I have to give that as much credence as any other theory uh, about what happens in this episode. Um, and since it's the only theory I've heard about this episode, because I haven't uh, delved into any alternate uh, plot spoilers or speculation or any, anything like that. No, me either. I, I guess that's the most valid, um, valid plot potential plot that i can think of for this christmas special jr well by default oh thanks <laughs> <laughs> are you looking forward to it though i am it's going to be honestly it's you know it, it's weird to think that uh you know november is is more or less here uh and so doctor who is on in like a month um or two, I guess, by the yeah, end of yeah. the month. Uh, Close it, enough. It's it's it. You know, I've sort of finally gotten used to sort of living without Doctor Who this calendar year, uh, despite doing a podcast about it. So I think it'll be. I think it'll be um, weird in a way once the you know the big promotions start to gear up, like around mid December, probably, and everyone's sort of like, oh, here comes Doctor Who. It's coming back. Blah blah blah. You know, to sort of have it thrust into the public eye again because you kind of forget about it sometimes, to be honest. Um, and I think the, the general public will probably forget about it a little bit too. So there'll probably be, need to be a little bit more of an extra push, I think, for the BBC to sort of get the casual viewer back on board. So, um, well, I think that's part and parcel of why Stephen Moffat said, right, let's do a superhero story. Cause I mean, superhero is a big business at the moment. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like, you know, all these other Christmas specials that we've had right back to the Russell T Davis ones, they've always had, you know, an angle. But that angle has always been either something Christmassy or something old, like Poseidon Adventure in the sort of Poseidon Adventure in space. For once, instead of going back to the past or off to Christmas, Stephen Moffat seems to have turned around and said, right, what's big at the moment? Let's throw that on the telly. I don't, I don't know. That that seems to me that's something that Doctor Who's never really done before. Yeah, and it's never it's it, as they as they were saying at the uh, New York City Comic Con, and they were sort of launching it. They said like we've never done a superhero thing before, and I'm curious to see how that how those two worlds will cross over, you know, because this superhero, you know, uh, Doctor Who doesn't sort of deal with the fantastical. Um, so how will they explain this superhero? Will he be an actual superhero, or will they just be sort of sort of vigilante in a uh, in an outfit who thinks he's a superhero? It's yeah. Uh, Will they sort of, you know, deconstruct that that whole genre, perhaps, with the way they tell this Christmas story? Well, knowing Stephen Moffat, there'll be some kind of de deconstruction going on. Mm -hmm. It's going to be interesting, whatever happens. Maybe he's alien augmented or something. Who knows? We'll find out in due course. He will. But it's fascinating to think that Doctor Who's actually... You know, when I saw their image and the title of the episode and what it was going to be, I was surprised, and that doesn't usually happen. 
Well, that's good. They can su- surprise you, Jr., because you've seen it all when it comes to Doctor Who. <laughs> I, I just like that they thought of the name, basically, because of uh, Peter Capaldi enjoying the fact that it's called Doctor Mysterio, and he would always say it in that voice uh, when he went to that um, BBC event in Mexico, and he yeah. was like, he was just enraptured with this idea. So I, find, I like that the this offhand, uh, mild obsession from Peter Capaldi is enough to fuel an entire Christmas special. Hey, that's where the best ideas come from, you know, isn't it? That's often true. You know, yep. just the little things that somebody says and they get lodged in the back of your mind. Those little nuggets of where the best ideas come from. Mm-hmm. What do you think of uh, of Nardo coming back for this, sort of being the companion for the, uh, the Christmas special? I'm kind of glad. You know, I think two things. One, I thought it was a bit of a shame that um, Matt Lucas didn't get more of a run out last year. Mm-hmm. So I think it's nice that they're Brit because people are so used to Little Britain and I don't know if you know Shooting Stars, but the character he played in Shooting Stars, they're so used to one aspect of Matt Lucas. And to be honest, most of Matt Lucas is that one aspect, mm-hmm. but he's better than that. He's not just that one thing. And he's been in some other stuff. And in... In these other things, he generally tends to play something similar, but he can play with a lot more depth than people probably give him credit for. And in the Christmas special last year, you know, he basically just had a tiny little bit part and he didn't get to show any of that depth. So I think it's nice that they're bringing him back and they're not going to bring him back for... I think he's doing the first three episodes, the Christmas special and the first two episodes of Series 10 or something. Okay. I think that's what it looks like to me. So if he's doing three episodes on the trot, they're going to give him more depth, aren't they? Mm-hmm. So I think it's a good thing that Matt Lucas is being given not just a, a cameo in order to do a few funny lines, but actually being given a proper acting part in Doctor Who. Yeah, it's also a way to sort of bridge the gap and... um you know, to not have a big flashy one-off companion in the Christmas special who will only be there for that while you're sort of trying to build up uh, excitement for the new companion. Um, you know, you don't want to necessarily overshadow that uh, as, you know, because otherwise, oh, why couldn't she have stayed once once Pearl Mackie debuts at long last in, in April? So yeah. it seems to be the, the perfect kind of companion to sort of have in this. Well, it's a nice way to do it because what you do presumably is you put Matt Lucas in the Christmas special and normally with Kylie Minogue or with David Morrissey or with whoever, at the end of the Christmas special, people say, right, that's what we're getting of them. Would have been lovely to see more of them. Would have been lovely to have them in some regular episodes in the series. Matt Lucas, oh, we are going to see more of him. We are getting regular episodes. So that's one thing to look forward to. And not only that, but the new companion starts in the spring as well. So we've got two things to look forward to. Mm-hmm. So it gives you, so it gives you something new to look forward to. And it gives you something which probably most casual viewers will like. And also it kind of helps to, the Christmas audience is always like 20% bigger than a regular audience for Doctor Who. If Matt Lucas stays in the TARDIS at the end of the episode, maybe a few more of those 20% than usually do will stick around to see the next series. Because mm-hmm. they might be fans of him and his comedy, which I assume he will bring some comedic chops to this. So, Well, of course. Yeah, of course he will. <laughs> He's Matt Lucas. Yeah. And I mean, I've said this before, but I get the impression, I don't know, 
I don't know whether it's so much I get the impression as this impression's been allowed to build up in my mind. But I think Stephen Moffat's going to relax a bit and have a bit of a fun year of Doctor Who. Because, I mean, he's told all his story arcs. So if he's got one more year to do before he hands over to Chris Chibnall and it's a year he was never expecting to do, hey, just kick back and have some fun with it. Mm-hmm. I sense I sense that's what it's going to be. I mean, just based on his comments from New York City Comic Con, he's sort of you know everything will be new and how it was getting kind of dark over those past two you know Peter Capaldi's yeah, yeah. first two series, and I think there'll sort of be a bit of a a, a a gear shift in a different direction for this upcoming series. And I bet you you can't go darker necessarily. It'd be better if you just sort of went a little lighter and see if where you go from there. So yeah, yeah it'll be it'll be exciting. It'll be a nice and lead into it. And you know what that does as well. That allows, because this is the thing, when they said Chris Chibnall was taking over and and Stephen Moffat had one more year, you couldn't imagine Peter Capaldi carrying on with Chris Chibnall after doing three years with Stephen Moffat, if all those three years were going to be fairly similar to one another, because it would be too much of a gear shift for that character, because mm-hmm. he wouldn't be he wouldn't be doing the Stephen Moffat dialogue in the Stephen Moffat-style stories anymore. But if Stephen Moffat does a year, okay, it'll still be similar dialogue. But if the stories are sufficiently different, that gives the Twelfth Doctor enough of a variety of approach that if he does stick around for Chris Chibnall, it won't feel so weird. Mm-hmm. And uh, by all reports, it looks like he is sticking around for at least one season of Chris Chibnall, which... Uh... Which I'm very much, A, I'm hoping it's true because I love Peter Capaldi, but I'm also hoping it's true because we haven't had really a doctor pass over or any from from different showrunner to different showrunner in the new series. It's always sort of the doctors, but, you know, Tennant went out with with, uh, RTD, so we never had a chance to see what he would do with uh, Matt Smith or Peter Capaldi or anything like that. So it, 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 it. It, it leads me to immediately to like season 18 and Peter Capaldi, you know, Tom Baker for Peter Capaldi, just for that kind of, if that is indeed his last series, the fourth one that he does, that it, I think there might be a bit of a different vibe to it in, yeah, in yeah. that regard. Yeah. yeah, funny times. You know, if you'd have asked me a year ago, and people did, and I said it on the podcast, I couldn't have seen... Chris Chibnall not wanting to start with an entirely clean slate like Stephen Moffat did, but if you've got an actor of the calibre of Peter Capaldi, why wouldn't you want to keep him? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And if he wants to stay, then yes, yes, please, Mr. Capaldi, you can stay. <laughs> speaking of Peter Capaldi, and speaking of having a year of no Doctor Who... bah Class! Okay, I'm going to... Because I'm assuming most of the people who are listening to this will have heard you talk about it, I'm going to lay my thoughts on the line in just a single sentence. I didn't think much at all of the first episode, and I really liked the second episode. So, Stephen, just in case people don't know what your thoughts were, how did you feel about Class? I liked both of these episodes, perhaps surprisingly so i'm not too sure i I didn't really have like i wasn't like geared up and say oh this is gonna be excellent i'm looking forward to this um because i didn't really know what to expect at all i sort of went in free from expectations i only really realized during the watching of the first episode that it was sort of geared towards a young adult i had been that blissfully aware uh, unaware yeah of, of how this is going to be and also because honestly i don't know much about young adult stuff to begin with because i'm not i'm not versed in it. i never read it as a kid i haven't really watched any movies or tv shows sort of you know geared towards that genre well it's um, more of a recent thing i think 
It's only become popular recently, I think. I think like more. Uh, I don't know whether they're classified as this particularly, but I suspect that the Twilight movies and the Twilight books would be what you would describe as YA fiction. Yes, this seems to be, you know, there's a, yeah. there's an amount of gore. I think we joked about this in RFS. This is what three middle-aged white guys yeah, sound yeah. like trying to sort of get to the bottom of what YA is. But uh, um, so it was, you know, as a 41-year-old male, this is my, like, my first full-on diving into what young adult fiction was kind of like. And I didn't know what to, you know, because a lot of Doctor Who fans were sort of saying, okay, is this Sarah Jane or is it Torchwood? Because yeah. that's the uh, that's the Doctor Who spinoffs that they know. And it's it's not, you could look at it and say it's a combination of the two because it's, you know, features kids, I guess. And it's sort of Torchwood in a way because there's blood and gore and swearing and stuff. But, but I find that it's completely different from those two. Well, have you ever seen a program called Skins? No, I haven't, but I know of it. Right, Skins is, I would say, the absolute prototype for this kind of thing on the telly. YA fiction, and I've never read any because I'm too old for it, and I don't think it existed when I was a kid, because I think it is fiction that specifically deals with issues of adolescence. Mm -hmm. And when I say issues of adolescence, and here's the thing with the Twilight movies, the whole, and books, the whole twilight thing was a big religious analogy a big christian analogy done through fantasy fiction mm -hmm. but it dealt with teenage growing up issues and uh, you know the vampire was um like a metaphor for a certain type of boyfriend that a girl could have and the werewolf was a metaphor for a different kind of boyfriend that a girl would have and the story of twilight is the author recommending to people watching it what kind of a boyfriend they should have <laughs> right well yeah well that is basically the bottom line of what twilight is about um youth uh youth young adult fiction specifically deals with adolescent issues insofar as i can and these could be issues, anything from, you know, your first experience of drug taking to uh, more specifically the sexual awakenings of things. If There's a program in Britain called Hollyoaks, which everybody takes the piss out of, but nobody watches. Mm -hmm. And it is essentially it is the YA soap opera in Britain. It's on five times a week on Channel 4. And I've got to tell you, we have it on our, in our house and I catch it maybe once, maybe twice a week. And it is really well written and really well acted. And it deals with a lot of stuff. And it's also very funny and very fast moving. But when it needs to, it deals with stuff sensitively. And so going into class, I'm expecting something where everything that turns up, a monster, a particular twist in the plot, like the monster comes and skins people... All this stuff in YA fiction isn't there just because it's a monster of the week. It's there to illustrate something about what adolescents are going through in their journey from being children to becoming adults. Mm -hmm. And that's what class is really all about. It's about growing up. Yeah, we're seeing we're seeing not necessarily like, you know, how do the kids beat the monsters every single week? We're sort of saying the kids beat the monsters every single week. How does it affect them? Yeah, and you not know. only that, you look at what the monsters are, the dragon that we had in episode two, we're mm -hmm. going to be jumping around a bit, but the dragon we had in episode two, 
The storyline isn't about what kind of a monster it is. When it comes down to it, the storyline is about this is a relationship that's broken down. Is there a way that you can fix this relationship where the one who survives doesn't entirely lose the one who doesn't survive? Again, this is... When I say these are sort of adolescent issues, it's not always adolescent issues that are specific to adolescent, but it's issues that anybody can have but dealt with in a way that's relevant to adolescents. So say you lose a family member, or say you split up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend, Mm -hmm. or say somebody moves away. This monster in the second one, this dragon, that's a metaphor for the feelings that their teenagers are having when they're dealing with those kinds of issues. That's what I'm saying. Everything in class is an issue to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. And in the first episode of like April, you know, having she's she's so nice and cares about everyone. She has such a big heart, so to speak, that she she's the one that sort of loses half her heart and sort of has to share mm. her heart with the uh, the the leader of the Shadowkin. You know, so exactly. she, her her caring is sort of tested as well. Well, yeah, she cares for her mother because her mother had that accident. So she takes that caring into the classroom and cares for and about everybody. And she gives so much heart that she actually literally gives half her heart away in the episode. Mm-hmm. Now, this was my issue with the first episode. I thought everything was too obvious. That, for example, what right. And this is, and I think, and if you look at things like Twilight, and if you look at things like Hollyoaks, and if you look at things like Skins as well, because these are my only experience of this kind of thing, but I have to say, they do appear to be rather obvious. That does seem to be one of the things that goes with YA fiction, that it has to be quite obvious. And I suppose, if you're dealing in metaphors, you want to make sure the people who are reading it get as much out of it as they can. So you make the metaphors really obvious. But mm. I thought that first episode was a bit stodgy. Really? I, I mean, it, that is a problem sometimes with with pilot episodes. You know, you have to sort of advance a story, but you also have to explain the world and the universe yeah, yeah. that it occurs in. And it's, you know, we didn't have, unlike Sarah Jane and Torchwood, we you know, we had Captain Jack... From Doctor Who coming to Torchwood, we had Sarah Jane, obviously, who we knew about before that show started. We have nothing to latch on to regarding Doctor Who, other than the setting, the Coal Hill School, Coal Hill Academy it is now. Apart from that, there's no actual tangible connection to the Doctor Who world in this. So we don't, you know, we have to sort of learn about these characters and their situation through the characters and the situations themselves, as opposed to having some sort of external familiar force uh, come in and sort of, you know, be our guide through it. So in that regard, it is tough to sort of like, how do you do that without, um, you know, making it too obvious? And sometimes they just sort of yeah. feel, well, that yeah, it can't be muddled, you know, and, and they have to sort of be, they have to be sort of set in stone by the time the doctor shows up. They can't really be a, a group of people who are sort of flailing and, and asking for help. And then the doctor comes on, you know. Do you know what they did in Skins, though? In Skins, they had Mm -hmm. eight characters and eight episodes. And in each one of the episodes, you followed the story of one of the characters. And you met that character's parents. And you met that character's family. And you learned what that character's issue was. And at the end of that episode, that character had dealt with that issue. But all eight characters are in all eight episodes. So Mm -hmm. by the time you come to record the first episode, all eight episodes are written... So all the writers and all the cast know who all those characters are. 
So the seven characters who aren't the centre of attention in the first episode turn up and they're all fully realised characters, even though they're all basically in the background of that episode. And my issue with the first episode of Class was, and I suppose if he'd have done it the way they did it in Skins, he'd have been accused of not just copying Buffy, but copying Skins as well. So maybe that's why. Because the second episode deals with um, Ram. And it looks to me like the third episode is going to deal with, I can't remember her name, the Nigerian girl. Oh, uh, Tanya. Tanya, that's right. So it looks like Skins might go, uh, Skins, Class might go the Skins route from the second episode. But in that first episode, it's like, here's a character, here's the parent, here's that character's issue. Right, here's another character, here's the other character's person, and here's that second character's issue. It just felt like they were shoving so many things in front of you that none of them felt fully realised. Well, they are, I mean, like I said about pilot issues, they are kind of a, you know, sort of a a grand introduction kind of thing. In in a way, uh, I'm going to equate this to my own podcasting experience, if that's a thing. Uh, In um, our our live show that we do at Gallifrey One each year um, isn't really um, an RFS episode, really, because it's, it's on stage and it's not at all what we usually do. Nor is it your standard convention panel. Yeah. You know, we have like four or five or six guest panels that are on for maybe 10 to 15 minutes and boom, they're kind of off. You don't really get too much in depth, but you get to see a bunch of people at the very beginning of the convention just sort of to introduce you to them over the course, you know, so there you go. You can come and see his panel for the full time. You know, like it's like an appetizer in a way. And that's yeah, kind yeah. of what a pilot episode or a first episode has to do because you have to, you know, if 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 they didn't like you know, develop Ram's character at all, or perhaps uh, Tanya's character at all or something, we would be looking at the end of episode one going, well, why? I thought she was like a main part of the cast. Why was she only in like three scenes for the most part, you know? Yeah, but then you look at Torchwood, and Torchwood, Captain Jack is the central character because it's the Doctor Who spin-off. But in Torchwood, you start with Gwen, and you follow Gwen's story throughout that first episode. And really, honestly, you barely get to see anybody other than Gwen and Captain Jack. The other characters are all there, but you don't see an awful lot of them till the second and the third. And then, you know, Susie has an episode later on when she comes back, even though she died. So in, even in Torchwood, there are different ways of doing these things. Yeah, because I think in Torchwood and Sarah Jane, you know, there is more of an ensemble cast in Doctor Who, but there still is a centure, central figure. It's Captain Jack yeah. on Torchwood. It's Sarah Jane. But on what Sarah I mean Jane is, it Adventures. was Gwen who we got introduced to in Torchwood, and it was her story we followed. I don't know. Yeah. I just it just felt to me in class like mm-hmm. if we could have seen, if we could have watched that entire April. Did you say um, no, Tanya? Tanya, the yeah. uh, Nigerian one, isn't it? Yeah. She's the one who's three years younger than everybody else. Mm-hmm. To me, I think we should have watched that entire first episode unfolding from her perspective. Well, see, now you're possibly thinking about, you know, you mentioned Torchwood, which is intriguing the way they they set that up, because that was the first Doctor Who spinoff, if you're not counting K-9 and Company, of course. Yeah. Uh, but the first big one. And so they were all, you know, you look at Torchwood, and it's almost like a remake of Rose in a way, you yes. know, and that Gwen is Rose and that we're seeing this weird world through her eyes. Yeah. 
And in a, in a similar way, I, I don't think we see Sarah Jane Smith in the uh, first episode. You know, we sort of see we, the kids first and they sort of meet Sarah Jane Smith and the Sarah Jane Smith role is sort of the doctor role or the Captain Jack role. Whereas, you know, these crew, they're all, you know, there's none no... None of them are the doctor. They're none, of the, none of them are the doctor. None of them are the, you know, there's not like, you know, Charlie and the gang. It's like there's five people in the main cast of this. None of them take a central role, so you kind of have to introduce them all, you know, on equal footing as opposed as opposed to getting one or two of them the spotlight and having the other three just sort of be supporting characters. I suppose you did actually get a bit of it from April's perspective at first. I don't know; it just felt like too much too soon that nothing had enough room to breathe for me. It felt it felt stodgy. It felt like it was it felt like it was all main course. Do you know what I mean? Hmm. And so it didn't really quite work for me. But the second one really did. I really enjoyed the second one. Was it... I wonder, because I, I, when I was watching the first one, you know, knowing as we did that the, uh, the Doctor was going to turn up in it, I have to admit, that, you know, parts of me were going, when does the Doctor turn up? Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Knowing his arrival is coming soon, I was kind of waiting for it. And so my my first viewing of it was was kind of not tainted by that, but certainly uh, overshadowed by his impending presence. Um, but I was just watching it again the first episode before recording today. I just you know I'd seen it like two twice before I reviewed it for RFS, so like it's kind of fresh in my mind anyway. And I thought I would just sort of like leave it on in the background while I did some other things. And I found myself just sort of stopping to watch for twenty minutes solid there before I said, "Oh right, I have to do this thing before I have, yeah, before yeah. I do this." And so I was like, I was caught up in it again. Do you know what I think will happen? I think that first episode will look a lot better once you've watched all the other seven episodes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, and you don't have to worry about what does this mean, who's that person, and all this kind of stuff, and how they all fit together. Once you've seen how they all fit together, that first episode will probably work better. Which is not the way it should be made, of course. It should be made so that it works first time, and for a lot of people it did. Mm-hmm. So, what can I say? Just for me, it didn't. What about the Doctor, then? Do you know what? I think, to my mind, Class would work so much better if it wasn't a spin-off and he hadn't been there and we hadn't seen the TARDIS and it was just the kids and two aliens had turned up in the school and nobody knew they were aliens and they had all these issues to deal with. I don't know. I I felt that... Because, I tell you what, Torchwood and Sarah Jane both feel like splinters of Doctor Who. Yeah. They've both got a lot of aspects of Doctor Who. Whereas this didn't feel like a splinter of Doctor Who. No, and I think those other two were sort of like, especially Torchwood, because it was the first. Yeah. And it's sort of like, they wanted to make clear, this is from Doctor Who. Look, there's Captain Jack. Look, there's things that you might recognize from Doctor Who. You know, fairly early on, but they have Cyberwoman, and there's, you know, some tangible references. And, of course, Sarah Jane Smith looks around erratic, and there's pictures of Doctor yeah, Who yeah, stuff. Yeah. And then the Doctor even turns up himself in a couple of episodes. Um, whereas this, you're right, it sort of establishes itself and then the doctor comes in and it almost feels like he's, he's getting in the way <laughs> a little bit, you know, like there were, you know, this, this was a, a, a functioning show. I welcomed his appearance, of course, and I enjoyed it and I was, thought it was quite excellent, but, uh, but it seemed just because of where it came in, um, it did feel a little bit out of place. And honestly, as the, as the gore factor was ramping up a little bit, I was thinking like, this is... Is, this is going to start to feel a little bit weird when <laughs> Doctor Who comes into this world because you wouldn't necessarily see that. And usually, you know, Russell T. Davis was very protective of his, of the, the 
children in the audience and saying that the doctor could go to Sarah Jane and vice versa and Torchwood could come to Doctor Who, but Doctor Who could never go to Torchwood yeah. because kids would seek that out and want to watch a, a show that's not for them just to see Doctor Who. And so I'm wondering if, if there are any children that says, oh, Doctor Who's in this episode and, you know, they're seeing a, a swearing and blood and gore and everything before the Doctor finally turns up. Well, fortunately, the swearing's been kept to a minimum and it's fairly moderate. Mm-hmm. But, and no sex either. Which is Not another thing. Yeah, which <laughs> is another thing people were worried about. And actually, if sex does come now, then it's going to feel like it's come naturally out of the story rather than being shoehorned in there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's the thing about the gore. It was, I, it felt to me justified. Yep, me too. But it felt, again, like it, it was a program that wasn't part of the Doctor Who universe. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and so actually, when he turns up, it's almost like he's visiting from another program. Which I suppose literally is what he's doing. <laughs> yep. But it, he just stuck out like a sore thumb. I tell you the one thing they did that was sort of clever. The mm. kids worked out how to resolve the issue themselves. But then the Doctor had to use the sonic screwdriver to boost the power so that the lights were bright enough. Yeah. So it's kind of clever that the kids worked out themselves how to deal with it. But the fact that the Doctor had to be there and had to then give it a push felt like it undermined them a little bit. A bit, yeah. Because yeah. you were kind of worried about whenever you bring in someone like the Doctor, he's obviously going to sort of be the star of the show. He isn't showing up to sort of watch people... Um, you know, solve the problem without him. He's there to solve the problem, so to speak. Yeah, actually, yeah. I, I I found because of you know a typical Doctor Who episode, especially with Capaldi's um Doctor, uh, he solves it with alternate means. But because the kids were basically doing all the problem solving in this instance, um, all he had to do was sort of, as you say, give it a boost. And I don't think I've ever seen Capaldi's Doctor use his sonic screwdriver so much in such a short amount of time. You know, boosting the lights, closing the, uh, um, the, the rift, so yeah, to speak. Yeah. Uh, you know, scanning April to see what's wrong with her heart. I mean, he was using that thing all the time. I was, I was surprised by that. Well, it felt like it was being written by somebody who maybe is kind of more used to Russell T. Davis Doctor Who, I suppose. That could be it. Yeah. I don't know. That was an odd thing. Anyway, second episode. Did you, did you find the second episode? better than the first or did you just just enjoy them both as much as one another i think i enjoyed them uh as much i think uh it was you know obviously this this rift thing is going to be a thing uh where, where yeah. all the monsters are coming through i you know there is a sense that there's a bit of a monster of the week thing happening here it was nice to see the throws forward to things like the robot it was nice yeah. to see throws forward to other stories that might not necessarily be connected with the arc that was a, that was very nice because you you sort of get the impression when the Shadowkin goes, you know, you haven't heard the last of me, so to speak, and he yeah. walks off into the void. We'll clearly hear from him later on, uh, and you sort of you do kind of expect that that is going to be the main thrust of the whole story. So it is refreshing to basically not hear from them again in the in the second episode. Instead, it's something else that's coming through the rift, and then the. The the governors, whoever they are, they're mysteriously revealed at the very end. You're right. It, it gives a couple of, you know, potentially separate storylines or threats, or perhaps they'll all be tied up um, 
at the end of the series. Who knows? Yeah, it but... could be that they all come back together in episode eight or something. But it didn't mm-hmm. feel like that. No, it, you know, it was. It, they almost made a um a point of making it so detached by no one caring about Miss Quill talking about the robot yes, yes. at all, and she was sort of left to her own devices to find out what was going on with this. Uh, like it's her own personal little thing, and so yeah. But then, of course, this could be the learning curve for the kids because in the moment they're all wrapped up in their own issues, mm-hmm. and they've got these things to deal with, this rift to deal with, and maybe this is the learning curve. Hang on, you've got to not just take care of your own issues, but you've got to keep your eyes and ears open as well. What do you think of Miss Quill? I like her. Um. It, I was, you know, it's a curious relationship. I like how they actually they introduced it because she seems just like a bitchy teacher, especially to Charlie by breaking his phone. They go, what an awful teacher. And then he comes home at the end of the day and she's there. Yeah. yeah. You know, and you almost kind of get this. Is there like, uh, you know, a parental thing there? Like I, what, you're not sure and you're supposed to not be sure of the of the relationship between the two of them. And she's kind of a reluctant you know, a leader of a terrorist organization, sort of basically a slave to to Charlie at this point, and sort of like reluctantly pulled along, to sort of be the minder for these uh, these four kids in a way. I, I'm intrigued to see where her character goes. I think she was a bit overdone in the first episode. I think she was a lot better in the second episode. I think in the first episode they kind of pushed to, in order to make that point about what that character was like. It felt mm-hmm. like they pushed her just a bit too far. But by, but then in the second episode, when she's not so on the front foot, it felt right then in the second episode to me. And she's a tremendous... She's a character who, who we're going to get a tremendous amount of fun out of by the look of it. Mm-hmm. She's almost she's almost kind of like the, um, the adult um, uh, entry point character in a way, you know, for... Perhaps that's why we identify identify with her a little more, perhaps because she's more our age now, and I suppose a younger audience will gravitate to the four uh, the four teenage actors. I tell you what, she reminds me of a little bit though mm-hmm. is Peter Capaldi in series eight when he doesn't understand anything and he's making these uh, what seem uh, well obviously on a fictional level they're jokes but when he says things about clara about are you wearing makeup i can't tell i don't know you don't look any different to me right it's that sort of level of humor isn't it a little bit yeah that's a shot of water kind of thing uh like you know charlie looking on his phone like what's folk dancing looking it up why are they all dancing in a circle that sort of you know looking up idris elba on his phone but Um, whereas the doctor wants to care in series eight she just doesn't give a damn. No, she doesn't. There's the genuine reluctance as opposed to why am I having to deal with this crap kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, she's great. And what about the other kids then? I like them all, actually. I was, you know, I'm I'm always, I'm, I have a tough time with ensemble cast, sort of like learning about all these characters, usually in episode one, and, you know, being forced to care about them all. I suppose it's a, it's a nice, it's a palatable size. Um, mm, I think mm. they're all different from each other. I think they're all, you know, they're all interesting. I actually, I think Charlie was my favorite. I really like Greg Austin's performance. I think he, he might be my my leading favorite so far. But I like I like all of them. Um, I think Ram probably has the most. Um, I think screen he has the mo- time yeah. a little bit. You know, like uh, the first two episodes are really kind of centered around him a lot, just because he gets his leg showing off in episode one. Well, there's, yeah, and they've given him kind of a an emotional journey. Already, 
whereas the other characters have all got backstory, but none of them have had anything of a journey yet. So Rams, obviously, this is one of those things. They've thrown him this thing at the start, and I can't imagine this football thing is going to carry on throughout all eight episodes. Especially now, especially now, the coach is dead. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So, I mean, that may get pushed into the background a bit more, and somebody else, like I say, from the trailer, it looked to me like maybe the focus is more on Tanya next time, but that that could just be, you know, the way the trailer was thrown together. Mm -hmm. But to throw a nice emotional storyline in into those first two episodes, and I disagreed with Chris. I didn't think they overdid it with the, him getting gunked by gore that's, every five minutes. That I was thought. kind of the point. It was yeah. the, to me, that was kind of the point. Is like, how far do we push him before he kicks back? Mm-hmm. And that was kind of what was going on there. I really like him. He's my favorite so far. Yeah, I don't have a least favorite. Let's put it that way. I like, uh, like I said, I like them all. I, um, yeah, I think yeah. they're, they're, they're a neat cast. Another, another thing I was just sort of thinking of, you were mentioning about tying up a couple other things that we're talking about, about how, you know, characters and seeing how they react to things and deal with things. A couple times in both episodes, like when in class after the, not the show class, but actually in class, um, <laughs> April sort of goes to Vivian, um, Vivian, Tanya, after, um, when is it now? I think it's after the experience in the gym. So, so Charlie and April have been there, but they don't know that um, that big, uh, Shadowkin came into Tanya's room when Ram is there, so they yeah, both know. Yeah. So she doesn't know about it. So she's sort of saying, you know, like, um, you know, just be careful at the at the prom tonight. And they said, why at the prom? And then we cut to not her explaining what happened. We cut to the reactions of the characters. Yeah. After they've been told, like, we don't see Ram telling his dad at the end of episode two. Everything that we've seen, by the way, there's this rift and people are coming through and they chopped my leg off and then a guy in a time machine gave me a new leg and everything like that. But we see his reaction to it afterward. Yeah, yeah. And I kind of like that. I like that approach to things where we see how people are dealing with things as opposed to them reacting to it, you know, as they're hearing it. Yeah, because we don't, we've seen it. We don't need to hear it again. That too. And, you know, just seeing what the shock reaction of those people or the disbelief, you know, or, you know, they would probably be be disbelieving him for like 10 minutes we don't have to deal with that we we know it's true so we just have to cut right to their reaction of it so overall you think i mean because there's been some way up and down reactions to this throughout doctor who fandom apparently what i'm hearing is on twitter the people who are the target audience the sort of teens and adolescents are absolutely lapping it up whereas the sort of Older school Doctor Who fans seem to be kind of, yeah, no, this ain't for me. Well, I think that's uh, yes and no, because my wife Erica is an old school Doctor Who fan, but she also is uh, likes uh, YA fiction as well, you know, having sort of grown up on it, but also just appreciating for what it is now. And she loved it. She was yeah. giddy after that first step. She hasn't even seen the second episode yet as we record wow. this. Um, but she loved the first episode of it. Uh, so I think there's I think there's a lot more wider appeal to this than perhaps people like you and I are giving the audience credit for. Yeah, I hope so. I think the trouble is, of course, it's slightly in the shadow of, well, not even slightly. Well, I mean, 20 years has gone by, so maybe, but in the shadow of Buffy. 
Because, mm-hmm. of course, it's set in a school. You've got a bunch of school kids. They're all sort of not friends, and then they have to become friends in order to fight the monsters, and there's a hell mouth that the monsters are coming out of. And it's kind of... If you're going to set something in a school with a different monster every week, there's only so many ways you can do it. So, I... Th- you know, for some people, it's like, I can't get past the fact that it's just Buffy, but it's not Buffy. But mm-hmm. I think sometimes you just have to accept that that's what it's going to be. And you've got to surrender to that and say, right, do the performances win me over? Does the script win me over? Does the dialogue win me over? Do the resolutions win me over? And I think if you can, uh, I think if you can forget all your preconceptions, about what you want it to be, about what you were expecting it to be, and about what you don't want it not to be. I think if you can get over all your preconceptions and just watch it for what it is, I think it looks very promising. Like I say, I didn't like that first episode, but I really mm-hmm. liked the second one a lot more. And if and if it continues in the vein of the second episode, and there's every indication it will, I think it'd be a really good series. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I, I I think I might have said this on RFS. I can't remember now, but you know, I was we didn't necessarily deal with Torchwood a lot at the time because I don't think we were that big of fans of it. We didn't really have the format of our podcast sort of honed when that first went out, anyway. And I was sort of like looking at planning ahead, reviewing class episodes, and I thought, is this risky? Um, you know, uh, sort of devoting an entire podcast episode to a review of class for us. I thought maybe we'd give it five minutes and that would be it. <laughs> but we talked for over half an hour. I think we're both really on board with this series. And, you know, um, we mentioned at the beginning about Power of the Daleks and how people going in, like this will be the first time they've ever seen Power of the Daleks without any baggage whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. I've never seen, I've never seen Buffy. You know, I'm, I'm, it, we do have to remember that Buffy was 20 years ago. Yeah. Before a lot of people who perhaps would be watching this show were even born. Well, that's it. The people this show's aimed at are not the people who were watching Buffy twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, we can't we can't trust for them to be all watching it on catch up services somewhere on Netflix or something like that. So no. it, yeah, it, it's a it's a new series for a new generation. I tell you the big difference between this and Torchwood. When Russell T Davis sat down to do Torchwood, he had an idea of what he wanted it to be, but he didn't have an idea of where he wanted it to go. Mm -hmm. And so that first series of Torchwood is, well, let's try this, then let's try that, let's see what works. The first first series of Torchwood is all experimenting with different kinds of a television program and seeing what kind of a television program Torchwood wants to be. Class is all written by the same person, that person knows exactly where it's starting, exactly where it's going, exactly where it's going to finish. It has a consistency that the first series of Torchwood, and probably even the second series of Torchwood, never had. Mm-hmm. That's the way the TV's made these days, too. You know? Yeah, yeah. You, you could sort of make it as an episodic week-to-week thing, but the, given the, the viewing patterns of, uh, you know, probably people won't even watch... You know, some there'll be some people who watch class like, oh, class is on. There's four episodes there. I, I maybe I'll start watching that now. You know, as a more of a streaming thing. That's why it's on BBC Three, yeah. as opposed to setting the timer and being there at like you know quarter past five on a Saturday night or something watching this. Yeah, I I hope it does find its audience. I think it will. If it comes to BBC One, which it probably will do, it'll be post watershed, so it'll be nine o'clock. But mm-hmm. if it comes to BBC One, I can imagine people getting into it. I mean, this is the thing. 
in Britain, we tend to have these short and short-lived series where you've got six or eight episodes. And they're the kind of things that people discover and they're the kind of things that people really remember. Things like Strange and things like Ultraviolet. You know, things that have become cult hits, not because they were ever intended to be, but just that's kind of one of the results of the way they're shown. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there'll ever be any more class. I, I kind of hope so, as long as it carries on sort of getting better and is consistent but even if there's no more class this will be remembered i suspect with fondness by the people who saw it yeah Mm -hmm. it'll be intriguing if they do make a second series say like you know because if they do it'll be after doctor who has been made um so you know Stephen moffat sort of like you know, offered this to Patrick Ness, but it's still sort of under he and Brian Minchin, and they're both leaving Doctor Who at the end of this next year. So if it does carry on, either Moffat and Minchin still have a hand in this, or they both make a clean break from the Doctor Who universe and and class carries on under the guise of something else. Well, you could see them carrying on with this, the way Russell T. Davies carried on with Sarah Jane. You could, I suppose, but it's also when you, you know, I don't know what the... uh, you know, the behind the scenes machinations were. I mean, Wizards versus Aliens, if you look at it, was kind of a way to sort of keep the Sarah Jane team uh, together, yeah. Team together and keep them employed, let's face it. Um whereas class, I don't think we would have this series if Doctor Who wasn't taking a year and a half off, essentially. No. You know? But but uh, yeah, and then on the other side of that coin, you've got the fact that Stephen Moffat and Stephen Moffat's wife principally runs a production company and mm-hmm. Stephen Moffat has his finger in production pies. So you can imagine that he, uh, you can imagine a situation where um, class carries on and Stephen Moffat's always the executive producer but never writes and he's not mm-hmm. especially hands-on necessarily but he's always there keeping it ticking over. You could see there, that, I think. There could be that. And then you also think you know, with uh, a show set with kids in school, kids leave school eventually. So how how long would they be in class four? Like, I don't know. Are they? Are, is, there, is this their last year? I don't necessarily understand how British schooling system works. If this was their last year in school, would be this year, they wouldn't necessarily have a reason to be in class. The period, the show, or no. the the or the school uh, next year. So this might just be a one off. I tell you what, Skins did. Because the in in the UK the college system works from sixteen to eighteen. It's two years. Mm-hmm. In Skins, you had a cast of characters in series one who were also in series two, and then they left. And then you had the new intake in series three, and they carried on into series four, and then right. they left, and so it went on like that. And there was a little bit of crossover because in the first series, one of the guys has got a younger sister who's two years younger, so she becomes one of the principal cast in Series 3. So, cast, potentially, could move out of the classroom and move into them getting jobs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Or, alternately, after a second series, they could leave and another group of characters could come in. Who knows? There are wa- you have to wait. Yeah, yeah, there are ways mm-hmm. for it to... Well, we're talking way too early about how it's going to continue, really, aren't we? <laughs> That's true. That is We've true. had two episodes. Yeah. No, I'm looking forward to it, though. I'm, uh, it's, you know, I, I, as I watch this show, um, 
I'm still perplexed as a decision, and I imagine as I keep watching this, I'll still be perplexed as to why BBC America, who heavily funded this and brought everyone over to be in that panel at, on, at um, New York Comic Con to launch the show essentially in October, is waiting to hold this back until April to launch with Doctor Who. Well, you know what? Warren answered that on Radio Free Scarrow, and I'm not entirely sure you noticed. What did he say? Because I'd well, never listened to him. So. You were talking later in the episode about the fact that there's been a survey and a lot of younger people, if things aren't easy to find, won't bother and they'll watch something else instead. Oh, right. Yeah. So, yeah, some people will seek it out. Those who are primarily Doctor Who fans. But when you brought... I mean, uh, Great Britain, Doctor Who, six, seven, eight million viewers, of which maybe 100,000 are on Gallifrey Base. At tops, mm-hmm. yeah. so it's probably ambitious. Actually, enough, I think it's probably smaller than that. Even yeah, but. well, you think about it, something like Class, if it doesn't show on BBC America, it shows on BBC America. Say it gets seven hundred and fifty thousand viewers. If it shows on BBC America six months late, how many of those seven hundred and fifty thousand are going to seek it out before? Maybe twenty thousand. So you've mm-hmm. still got seven hundred thirty thousand viewers. Yeah, I'm just wondering, like, why sort of like instead of capitalizing on the hubbub from from New York Comic Con to you know the people in England being all happy with it and you know watching it and everyone's talking about it, to not showing it until it just I I'm still I think wondering you've if answered it's that question too though, do you know? Because of Dirk Gently, because now that you've seen Class, you understand uh-huh. it's got to go in the nine o'clock slot. That's true. I if, it, if it goes at 10, thing. it loses mm-hmm. half its audience, but it can't go at 8 because it's too grown up. I suspect Dirk Gently's the same. Can't go at 10, can't go at 8, has to go at 9. And Dirk Gently's the one, it seems to me, that BBC America have a bigger stake in. They do. And although I, I've never seen, obviously, BBC America, but I, from things that you've said on the podcast, I get the feeling that Saturday night is a big thing for BBC America. Well, it's become that because of Doctor Who, because Doctor yeah. Who became sort of their flagship show. And I bet you if they had a choice, they wouldn't be airing Doctor Who on Saturday nights. But because they were, you know, they needed to go day and date because Doctor Who is such a huge brand, they sort of have to do it on the same day, that that became the day. And so they've launched a couple other shows like Orphan Black, for yeah, instance, yeah. right after Doctor Who on Saturday nights. And then this past year when there was no Doctor Who, of course, uh, for series, season four of Orphan Black, they were free to move it wherever they wanted. They didn't keep it to Saturday night. They moved it to Thursday nights, which I, I imagine is probably more um, appealing to them ratings-wise. I, th- I think it's just merely the Doctor Who tradition that is keeping it Saturday night. But they kudos well, to I'm, them for sort of turning that Saturday into a, thing. a day of television, yeah, yeah. sort of having it to themselves in a way. Well, I'm guessing then that in this autumn season, they wanted to put Dirk Gently on and promote the hell out of that first. And then, my guess is this. Having made the decision that they wanted Dirk Gently on Saturday nights and they wanted Class on Saturday nights, they've said, right, one of them's going to have to wait till the other one's finished. And because the money or the promotion that they want is in Dirk Gently, they've said, okay, Class has to wait till Dirk Gently finishes. And so mm-hmm. then you've already got two months Class has had to wait. And at which point you say, right, do we put class on at Christmas into January? Do we start it in January and have it running into February? Well, hang on. 
end of March, you've got Doctor Who back, and Doctor Who's in the 8 o'clock slot. So that gives Class an even bigger push, because hopefully it keeps the audience from Doctor Who. So actually, by delaying Class by six months, it might get more viewers rather than fewer. Yeah. So I think you're probably you right know. about that, especially with the lead-in from Doctor Who. That's, yeah, you know, that's what that's I'm saying. That's how Orphan Black became a thing, too, so... Yeah, so you get the lead-in from Doctor Who. So so it might actually be. It might look a very weird and silly decision now. In six months' time, you might be sitting there on Radio Free Scarrow saying, The geniuses! <laughs> look at how much of a hit class has become. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And obviously there was that push at the Comic-Con, but I suspect there was probably an even bigger push for Dirk Gently at the Comic-Con. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I don't know. I suppose, I suppose, uh, I mean, BBC America is looking to sort of make that uh, New York Comic Con a big thing, probably even bigger for than San Diego, just based on the, the timing. Yeah. But I suppose you could also make the argument, why would they, they plug uh, Class so hard when they're not airing it until April? Why bring Pearl Mackey over if you're not going to see her until April as well? So there's, I suppose there's, there's no such thing as timely branding being the only way. You know, you can, you can still get people hyped and excited about a product that they won't see for a few months. Yeah, I guess so. It's funny because in this modern day and age, everything seems to be, I want it now, I want it now. But I guess if you seed the idea in people's minds, and as long as it's not too late, as long as it's not like two years or something, mm-hmm. if it's only a few months down the line, and I suppose with class, if it's been broadcasting in other countries, that news is going to filter through social media to the people who aren't watching it yet. And like you were talking about with Warren, if those people aren't going to seek it out because it's, you know, a bit troublesome, by the time it does come to broadcast on BBC America, as well as the lead-in from Doctor Who, as well as the fact that it's in that Saturday night slot, you have the third factor of them all thinking, hang on, this is the thing everybody said was really good. We should tune in and find out for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I tell you, Stephen, those mm. people at BBC America, geniuses. <laughs> geniuses. <laughs> Once they're when they're full on producing Doctor Who in three or four years' time, we'll be we'll be bowing down to their feet for because I I imagine that I mean there's a lot of money coming in from BBC America for Doctor Who, uh, I'd imagine for class as well. So um, so they can schedule it wherever they want. Yeah. Well, on that note, then I think we knock it on the head for tonight because uh, <clears throat> I've got a really early start for work tomorrow. How about you? Uh, not as much for me. It's the middle of the afternoon for me, JR. I do love these uh, transatlantic recordings that we have. <laughs> nice. Well, thanks for reminding me. I've got to get yeah. up in six hours and you don't. <laughs> um, you know what? I never do this, but you did this to me the other day, so I'm going to do it to you now. Where can people find Radio Free Scarrow? Those <laughs> 1% of our listeners who don't already listen to Radio Free Scarrow, where can they find it? You can find it on the internet at RadioFreeScarrow.com or on Twitter at RadioFreeScarrow. Um, weekly episodes every single Sunday, uh, except for a Christmas episode, which I think will be out on Monday as we review uh, The Return of Dr. Mysterio, because Boxing Day, I think it's on a Monday this year. So oh. that's the only time our, our schedule sort of goes out of whack a little bit to review the Christmas episode. But um, that's coming up, as we said, in like less than two months. <sighs> Right, and as for regular listeners who want to know what Lee and Mark and Lee and Mark and Simon and Matt all thought of uh, class, well, uh, we're not going to be doing it weekly. We're just going to do a roundup at the end, I think, because we've got some weird things coming up. 
I don't think we're all going to be together until it's finished, actually. Who knows? We will find out what the others thought of it in due course. Um, after the, uh, after a little tiny break of music, there's going to be another Easter egg from Simon's wanderings up to Derby or wherever it was for Hooverville. It was Derby, wasn't it, Stephen? It was in Derby, yep. Yep. So there'll be another half an hour from Simon at Derby at Hooverville after the uh, music. But until next week, when I have not the first clue what's going to be on the podcast, I was JR. <laughs> I was Stephen. And we'll speak again soon. Yeah, I'm recording now. Um, yeah, oh, in fact, yes, there's a, there's a nice synchronisation point. Yeah. Um, Don't confuse so, this one. <laughs> this, is, this is the slightly haphazardly arranged um, podcasty room bit of Hooverville. Um, in a corner, uh, recording on several devices in Tennessee. So let's just go around the table and introduce ourselves. I'm Luke, from the Mind You.2 podcast. I'm Adam, Stanley Stories. I'm Eric Sayward, writer and script editor. I'm Simon from the Blue Box podcast. I'm Nick Briggs, executive producer, Big Finish, and um, voice of the Daleks and things. I'm a thing. I did go to a Hooverville many years ago. Was it still in a train shed? It was in a train shed and it smelt of poo because there'd been some sort of rupture in the um, in the sewage sewage system. And that's my main memory of it. Uh, yeah, yeah. It smells of poo. Yeah. <laughs> It's a bit like saying you're at the first Glastonbury. It's a bit like that. <laughs> yeah. I've never been to, have I been to Yeah, I have been to Glastonbury. Have you been? I yeah. did, it was a beautiful year. Yeah. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> <laughs> that's what these conversations were. Well, I can tell you about Glastonbury if you like. Uh, Eric, this is your first time at Hooverville, I believe? Yes, uh, it's the first time. How's it been? Fine, they're very friendly. Uh, yes, it's been It's always nice to be told you're great. Oh. <laughs> I'll tell you what, I And I think, who are they talking to? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think, perhaps because of how you're here on the show, and people perhaps less opinion of it, but, but I'm, I've always really enjoyed the stuff from, from, from your era. Well, I, I was a, a child at the time, and I obviously knew nothing of the mind and stuff. I always loved it. Never. Why wouldn't it have any impact at all on what's on the screen? 
Yeah, but that's, uh, you know, I had someone uh, write to me, I wrote a Doctor Who book, and someone wrote to me on Twitter and said, uh, I don't think your book's rubbish, I really like it. That's that kind of praise, which is a little bit galling, <laughs> isn't it? You know? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's particularly, particularly, I suppose, if that's, if that's your first exposure to the fact that people do think it's rubbish. Yeah, exactly. No, yeah. but that's what happened to me, you know. I thought, oh, I thought people liked it. <laughs> no, I don't. It's like uh, my friend Rob Shearman, who I think you know, yeah. Rob Shearman. Rob Shearman, when I first got to know him, he said, you know, he said the thing about you. Know, he said, of course, you know, everyone online hates you, Nick. And I went, what? <laughs> I said, he said, don't you read all that? I said, no, I don't. He went, oh, God, no, people really think you're awful. I went, right, how's this helping? He said, but I don't think so. He said, I think you're really good. Oh, well, that's all right. This is that thing about the people with the negative viewpoint. They've always got the loudest voices, haven't they? Yes. Well, and also, we listen to negative viewpoints more. Yeah, we do. Yeah. They have more of an effect on us, don't they? You know, we, we can get loads of praise, and then one person says, I didn't like that bit, you think, oh, right, yeah, it was rubbish then, wasn't it? You know? mm, mm. That's my fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, I'd, I'd love to ask you, because we do, all we ever, all the conversations I've heard with you have always been about your time on the show, but you as a writer, yes. what, what got you writing in the first place? What, was the, what were your inspirations? I don't know now, it's so long ago. Um, no, I don't know. I just thought it would be an interesting thing to do. Mm. I tried writing a novel, which was not very good. And so I thought, well, perhaps I've chosen the wrong area of something. And I thought, well, maybe it's easier to write a script because you don't have to put all the other bits in that you have to do in a, <laughs> a novel. So obviously laziness was creeping in by that stage. And uh, I, I, I did, I fiddled about for a couple of years and uh, I wrote a radio play called Fall um, Fall of David Moore, which was terribly intellectual and wonderful. And I was going to, Olivier would be ringing me up the next day. And of course it didn't really work at all. So I thought, well, I'll try something a little bit more lightweight. And I, did, I wrote a thing called The Assassin, which was about a, an actor who is also a detective in Victorian London. And people loved that. And I went on from there. Mm. I started writing radio and the rest about how I decided on who is been said many times. Mm. Yes, that's, that's the thing. Is there a way of getting us, anyone to, to hear this work? Which work? The, the, the early, the radio play. Um, most of it doesn't exist. Right. As, with, as with television, they cleared out the cupboards. Yeah. And so it's scraps and bits and pieces. They do that though. With TV, it's black and white, it's old fashioned, but radio is audio. Yeah, they all said it was space because in those days you had one inch tape, and, and nowadays, of course, the discs take up no space at all. But um, I think they, they've, they've forgotten that um, recording, radio, recording radio or television has other values to it just being entertainment. It, it tells you about the generation that made them. It tells you so much about how people were thinking and what concerned them. And dr dramatically it was interesting to see what, what, just what people were doing. But they, they didn't see, see, think that was important. It is. Yes, that's right. There's always so many underlying assumptions. In anything, and people might think they're writing in a fairly neutral way, but it will totally speak of their age. I was just recently um, editing a uh, a script that was going to be uh, that's going to be for Tom Baker as an audio production, and it's uh, I noticed when you look at it from the point of view that it's meant to sort of meant to have been done in the seventies, as it were. That's the way I look at it. 
there are all sorts of little quirks of modern idioms that just wouldn't have been used in the 70s. And interestingly, Tom Baker always corrects them. We, we have, and one example is, and this isn't a great sort of bit of social commentary, but one example is that we use the verb to need all the time. Oh, I need to do that. I need to, whereas that, that didn't happen in the 70s. That's something that's, I don't know what, it's, it's, our language has become less emphatic because we're so frightened of offending people. Mm. What, we, what we really meant was, uh, I should, or I must, or I have to. But, and, and Tom always changed that, you know, we need to get back to the TARDIS. He always changes it to, I have to get back to the TARDIS. We should get back to the TARDIS. He always does that. And so I was going through a find and replace on all the needs, and it, it's everywhere. <laughs> People will say, oh, you need, oh, I need to do that. Or, you know, it, it's interesting how language changes. And it does, I don't know, it, 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 it certainly, I don't know whether it says much about people, but it certainly does give a different flavour. And I think that's important. I mean, you say, I need to go to the lavatory. And, you, and instead you say, I should go to the lavatory. I need is, is okay in that. <laughs> it sounds like the conversations I have with my wife. She says, I need a new handbag. And I say, well, you've already got a handbag. Yes, but you don't understand. Yes. <laughs> that's the thing. People, but also, people use have to as an excuse. Oh, I have to go and do that. And you, think, well, you don't have to. You're choosing not to be with me. Whatever. You're, I'm sorry, I can't meet you tonight because I have to go shopping with my mother. Or whatever. You don't have to. But you've decided that's more important. And that's fine. Just tell me that. Be more honest. Make me feel bad. <laughs> Yeah, that's dumped you, isn't it? This fixation, you shopping with your mother. I mean, that's pretty <laughs> <laughs> I never go shopping with my mother. I'm just completely figuring That's how creative I was. I'm right. I just came up with an idea about my mother and shopping. I'm so creative. <laughs> Tell me about your childhood. Oh, no, you already have, yeah. You've <laughs> already bored you. Yeah. <laughs> Someone cosplaying as Avon. Oh. Indeed, it is. Get out! <laughs> Wrong convention. Yes. Uh, Stormtroopers downstairs earlier. I don't know what they were. Was that the, um, what's his name? Dark Feet? Yeah, Dark Feet. Stormtroopers. Yeah. These people have no idea where they are. No, I'm wrong series. I don't know why, but I saw somebody dressed up as Loki from uh, Marvel. Yeah. Out don't, on the I don't even know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> I it's not the BBC, it doesn't count. No, no, no. I literally don't know what you mean. <laughs> My son would know. He knows. Oh, okay, yeah. Has he been in a film? Oh, a few guys. Thor, yeah. Avengers, Thor 2, and soon Thor 3. Wow. Even I watched 20 and, minutes uh, of Thor and switched it off. I thought it was awful. Well, the other day. Well, not, not the other day. But I watched it on television the other day. Oh, was it on the, oh, yeah. No, I, I actually fired a DVD of it a few years ago. Yeah. You know, paid my three pound fifty. Watched twenty minutes and thought, that's three pound fifty that's gone down the drain. I can't. I couldn't bear it. I couldn't bear it. Did you need to hire it, or should I not have? Hired it? <laughs> oh, oh, now all confused, Eric. I don't know what to say. <laughs> When the third one comes out, and if you go and see it with a couple of mates, that's going to be a bit tricky, isn't it? Going to have three for Thor three. If you can bring yourself to watch Thor two, of course, Mr. Eccleston's in it, so you're going to have to be a little bit. But largely unrecognisable. Well, yeah. It's not a great I don't just watch films because someone who played Doctor Who's in them. Well, no, I'm just saying. If you give your opinion on it. And I haven't seen the Avengers, because as far as I'm concerned, the Avengers have got Steed and Mrs. Peel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next question. Next question. Um, anyway, does Thor, Thor has not improved in over the years. Having watched it on two weeks ago, I think, BBC One. 
it's not improved. It should have improved. I mean, it's been in the can for so long. Usually they get better with age. But, you know. Isn't it directed by Kenneth Branagh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know it's amazing, isn't it? I think he made a fortune out of it because it's, it's massively popular. I cannot for the life of me say I think twenty. I think I'm probably exaggerating when I say twenty minutes. <laughs> there was there was some uh, half naked man with long hair in a smoky place kneeling. It's, sure yeah. it's a long way from reading the comics. It really is. <laughs> a particular one. I would re thoroughly. Have you seen Ant Man? Ant Man oh, is a boys in boxer shorts who came on. I don't know. <laughs> Ant Man. That, that of the Marvel films, I'd say Ant-Man is a... Ant-Man. Ant-Man. Ant it's a joy. Apparently it's very good. It is good. Yeah, it's very funny. in the right mood for the right film, and I, I'm yeah. sure on other occasions. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know that series, Peaky Blinders? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a few... Uh, a couple of years ago, I started... I thought, oh, I want to watch something on Netflix. I put it on. And I watched about the first three minutes, and I just thought, oh, this is going to be so depressing. All the people are going to be unappealing, <laughs> disgusting vermin, you know. And I switched it off. And then, uh, yeah, it was probably over a year later, uh, I... Uh, I thought oh, I was really stuck for something to watch and I couldn't get to sleep and I just thought I'll just um Peaky Blinders. The brilliant thing is that Netflix remembers even from years before where you left off, and it started. And within two minutes, it had me. I thought if I'd only waited two more minutes, but also the different. And now I became obsessed with it and had to devour it. And now I'm right up to date with Peaky Blinders, and I think it's the most amazing thing. And the people are all unappealing and vermin, but they are fascinatingly so, and it's really compelling. Yeah, yeah, I'm fascinated by that whole thing of. You know, rooting for characters who you know are evil, but they have a charisma about them. Like House of Cards. Yeah, yeah. But that's one of the fundamental human problems, isn't it? You know, being uh, human beings being attracted by the charisma of the despicable. Um, Adolf Hitler being a good example. <laughs> the best example. <laughs> a prime example. <laughs> Um, you were saying earlier, Nick, um, about uh, there's always a Doctor Who story for your mood. Oh, yes. Um, do you, have you ever found that you're never in the mood for a Doctor Who story? <laughs> I must have been, you know, but probably because that was to do with sex, you know. <laughs> no, no, but what I'm saying is, I think, you know, I think if, if I were... <laughs> I think it's inappropriate to watch a Doctor Who episode while you're having sex. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. There's something else I wanted to tell you then, but I realise I'm married, so I can't, I can't, I can't mention that. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. No, you know what I mean. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, so did I ever I give up sex for Doctor Who? Did I ever give up? The, yeah, I don't know. But no, I always. Yeah. No. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's, it's the other way around. It's the same question as the other <laughs> way around. <laughs> Move on. No, uh, no. I always, I think, I can always probably find an episode of Doctor to watch. Um, particularly my young son. Um, you know, he's learned that he can uh, contrive to have more time with me if he wants to watch an old Doctor Who. He said, "Oh, Daddy," because I'm working upstairs in the study all the time. So, Daddy, can can we watch something on DVD? And he sees my face. Like, 
I'm not going to watch Alvin and the bloody chipmunks again, you know. Uh, and he goes, we could watch an old Doctor Who. And I go, well, which one? The one with the Cybermen and the androids in the tunnel. I'm not just saying that because of you. So I'll watch Earthshock. I'll watch Earthshock. I have seen Earthshock so many times now. I am a bit sick of it, it's true. But, you know, there's always something new to see in... I've forgotten her name. Who's the famous actress in it? Beryl Reed. Beryl Reed's performance, you know. That's interesting through the eyes of... A child who has grown up with New Who, yes, looking at Old Who. Well, How what's good about Old Doctor Who for uh, a kid is that the uh, this is sort of like damning and faint praise. It's the story's clearer because there's yeah. less flimflam in the way. You know, it's much more uh, as. You know, no matter how creative the directors tried to be, and some of them were amazingly creative, I thought, it's still like sports coverage, yeah. mostly. It's still, you know, because of the limitations of the way of doing it. And, and, and modern Doctor Who is like shot through a sparkly filter, almost, you know, and it, you, you can't quite... The story is laid bare in those older ones, and, and kids, I think, respond to that really well. It's nice and clear. Yeah. Always be right that they find it too slow. It's sped up a lot, even during old Who. It's very, very much. New Who is a whole new quantum leap. I do feel uh, I feel a pang of guilt when I think of uh, my son watching that the, there was an episode, you know, the Mummy on the Train. Yeah, and you know, and they were showing it very late at that point, weren't they? About eight o'clock in the evening. And Ben, you know, uh, would we'd allow him to stay up late. It was about five then. So he'd get into his pajamas and have a duvet on the sofa, and he'd watch it. At that point, where this mummy, rotting flesh, is looming up to the camera, and I looked at him, and he was just there, and his eyes were bigger than I'd ever seen them. And I thought, what am I doing to my son? It didn't frighten him. It's, it's so bizarre. What we think frightens children, what actually frightens them, and mostly he has. What really frightens him about Doctor Who is when it gets dark. If, if there's if there's a scene where the lights low, it doesn't matter how ghastly the monster is or what it's going to do to someone. That seems he seems unaffected by that. But it's if it's, it's like the one with the ice warrior on the submarine. He always holds on to me. He asks to watch it. The submarine is dark. The power goes off, and it's dark, and that's what upsets him. Not the monster that's blasting people or anything like that, or the prospect of nuclear destruction. No, it's dark. It's dark. Which and I suppose Mummy on the Express was actually. For the most part, quite brightly lit. Yeah. But yes, like you say, it's one of those things we wouldn't necessarily. I did. I really thought. I looked at Steph and said. <laughs> Of course, you can't. Once they're watching it, you can't take them away from it. But he has never said switch it off or I can't bear it or anything like that. But he has been watching it since he was two. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose the nature of the way of who uh, was made that uh, the only way you could get something in the dark was to either go into a cave or because the, the technology just wasn't there to have have um, subtle lighting effects, especially in the studio. Five thousand watts goes up just to light the, the corner of the set. It's uh, yeah. Who who did you write Doctor Who for? I mean, Nick's talking about his son at the age of two, age of five, watching it. Who 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 was your 
prime candidate for oh, the I Jim Nick Sun. Yeah. I, mean, I, I had them totally in mind. <laughs> oh. He's got a time machine. <laughs> <laughs> if you told me back then I'd have a son, I would have been quite shocked. <laughs> and and were, you, were you aiming to scare, or were you aiming to, to entertain with, with kind of scares along the way? Uh, well, this is also attempt to scare. It's, I think it's very difficult to scare people properly. Um, but I, I um, no, I wanted to tell a strong story, and I wanted uh, hopefully to get the famous behind the sofa thing. Yeah. But um, I mean, no, it didn't always happen as it should have. I have to say one of the one of the images that always sticks with me is Stengoss's head inside the. Yeah. That that genuinely creeps me out, I and mean, it still does when I watch it again. You get those kind of moments of like, well, that is. Well, that is particularly grim because of, <laughs> yeah, because, yeah. because of the context, because of what's yeah. happening to him. Yeah. And, it's, and he's asking his daughter to come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's really quite harsh, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was splendid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is splendid. It's brilliantly done yeah. because it sets out to do something and it absolutely achieves yeah. it. And that's the brilliant thing. It's not, you don't think, oh, it's a pity that. I mean, he looks ghastly. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and convincingly so. Yeah. And all those motivations and yeah. things are going on. Yeah. I still wince when the, the when the doctor's wrestling with the bloke outside in that story, oh, yeah. and he <laughs> dribbles. <laughs> <laughs> that really still upsets me. I remember when I first saw it. I went, "Oh, oh, I'm just having a dinner." You know? I, I remember that when I saw that that up, uh, episode being filmed, and I just casually, when I was writing it, written back. Um, you know, it's, it's, the thing comes out or wherever, and uh, I thought, what should I, should I have him? Yes, he's, he's, his face looks as though it's been melted, <laughs> and of course, uh, the, the, the cost, um, makeup did exactly that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at him, thinking, this poor man had to walk around with all this crap on his face <laughs> in the snow and fr be freezing cold waiting to appear and I thought what a cruel man I am <laughs> <laughs> and that allegedly could have been is, is it Olivia is it true? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no it was a joke in the office <laughs> I, I don't think anyone ever attempted no, it yeah. I mean the poor man was old oh, yes. it would have been a terrible <laughs> thing to do to him <laughs> coming up with these walking sticks <laughs> I went to beat you to death doctor stand still <laughs> was there ever a uh, a well-known actor that you went after who, who, who said no? I think they bombed it. Some of them you, no doubt. But... I mean, Beryl Reed should have said no. That would be a different programme entirely. I got into Doctor Who through the VHS tapes in the early 90s and I had no idea who Beryl Reed was. Yeah. So, so, Earthshock is probably my only, in fact, my only exposure to her. Oh, yeah, so what's so it like so not I, knowing who well, she I've is? Never, because I remember thinking, what? Oh, Sarah Beryl Reed? No, it's, it's, so I never understood. <laughs> to me, she's, she is that part. Yeah. And when people go, kind of, she's wrong for the part, I'm like, well, that's, that's, that's just the, because she's the only thing I've ever seen. You can so see just, her in other things. Well, yes, I could, get, I could go after her. And, and she's yeah. it, made several films, entertaining yes. Mr. Sloan, I think. Was yes. Right. Yes. 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 But, but no, I mean, so she just, she just works. Yes. Um, you didn't write it for that kind of performance, though, did you? Did you write it as a woman? Or was it, did it not matter? I can't remember. I didn't, it didn't, didn't bother me that they changed the sex of the person. 
Oh, I, all I hope for is that the actor who they've booked can, can do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you think, knowing who she was? Well, I thought, you know, oh, Beryl Reed, that's interesting, remembering these films. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I thought, well, that could be quite interesting. Expecting then this woman to turn up, barking and ordering people around. She does to a degree, because it's in the script, but it's also slightly sort of, unknown. when she says, go into warp drive, I mean, it sounds like she's going out, you know, in warp drive. It doesn't convince. The stakes weren't high enough, is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Yes. I did, for me, the moment where she, when she finally comes on to the fact that there are however many thousand Cybermen in the hole, you, you believe that she is suddenly realising what's going on. Do you? Well, <laughs> I do. I see what you mean about the whole, yeah. As, yes. Because she doesn't really understand what warp drive is. Yeah. And that sort of does come across. I, you know, there are certain parts within Big Finish when we're casting, and I say to, you know, my line producer, David Richardson, who often helpfully does the casting for me because I hate all agents, including my own, um, <laughs> if he's listening, which he wouldn't because he's not remotely interested in me. Um, <laughs> getting the, these gigs into someone or another. <laughs> I'll say, you know, for this part, for this sort of raving monster or whatever, we really need to get an actor who is into sci-fi and understands how this kind of thing works. Because, I mean, you know, I will not give the example, but it's, it's a particular actress we had in not that long ago. And, you know, I just uh, she was just giving a performance that was... Several, it was it was a true and good performance, but it was it was several uh, uh, levels below what was required in terms of the. the I said to her eventually because I felt like I was saying to her, "Will you start acting?" Really, um, you know, she was having her mind burnt out and stuff, and she was behaving like she touched the stove and burnt her finger. <laughs> you know, but it needs. I said, I said, it just needs to be operatic and that seemed to do the trick for her then she it was still a very subtle performance but it had it did she did get the right level of intensity sort of burning through but it's it's so difficult with some actors to get them to to go to that level you're on a spaceship you're going to go to warp speed this is important you know that kind of thing rather than oh i'm going to warp speed oh that's a nice noise Yeah, I, you get good casting. Dave, Dave, I'm his surname now. David thing who played the cyber leader. Oh, James Banks. Yeah, he was he was brilliant. You believed that he was really what he was doing. Tremendous presence. Yes. I mean, he did, he really bought into it and yeah. wrote a book about it afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He wrote all about the cyber. And then wrote at least one of the novels, didn't he? Of, uh, he did. He, yeah. That's so, just going to ruin your recording. That mm. is not great, is it? What is that noise? <laughs> oh, it's that. I could turn it off if you want. The air con. There we go. Hey. The noise is gone. <laughs> I mean, go, going back to Earth, Earthshock, you, um, you had the opportunity to do something which is becoming increasingly difficult. Which is to spring the surprise of the Cybermen. I mean, was that was that in the minds of John Nathan Turner or you? Or wanted, no, he wanted to make uh, the comeback a bang. Yeah, and he. Um, we must know all this. He he closed the studios to outside as no one was allowed to. His scripts were put in the safe. Thank goodness, because then none of us could read them. And uh, the <laughs> the. Uh, Slow build, I like that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, 
and so he, that's what he made. And we were supposed to have a, a Radio Times cover, and he said no to that, which must have hurt him a lot. And um, anyway, that was the point to hide it. Well, what we were only hiding it from were fans, yeah. not the general public. The general, general public didn't give a damn. No, no, no. And Kuchaya was there. You know the hilarious thing that happened about that, though? They t- the Radio Times blew it anyway because they put um, a comic strip in the back page which features the Simon. And I, as a fan at the time, I was at college at the time, at drama school, and I, I remember reading, and I, and I thought, and in Doctor Who magazine they were doing, a, oh, what will it be? Who knows what the earth shock is and everything. And I just thought, what's the Simon? A week in advance, the Radio Times blew it, mm. which might have been their revenge for being turned down for the cover. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I want to say something. Sort of keeping things secret. The obsession with keeping things secret, I think, is misplaced. And I know that when you struggle hard to have a big surprising plot line, it's awful if people find out. I remember when we were shooting that first Dalek one with Christopher Eccleston. It turned out that there was a, a fan as one of the extras, and he took photographs of the Dalek and of all the storyboards. Are all hanging around in the daily sides uh, of the Dalek elevating and, and people shooting at it and all this sort of stuff and a big arrow to show where it elevated it. And the, and the Sun or the Mirror published it all. What happened to him? Do, <laughs> he were, well, funny enough, they accidentally employed him again. Anyway, that's, that's, that's the BBC for you. But, um, I'm telling you that story and none of you are going, yeah, 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 because we don't remember it. No. You don't remember. No one remembers that the, the, the shock of Daleks flying and all that was spoiled months in advance. Because really, actually, I think, it's just me and my stupid ideas, that what compels people about the story is how it happens. Mm. Not what happens, but how it happens. That is the thing that a good story, you know, like a good film, you watch again and again, even though you know what's going to happen. It's not the what, it's the how. It doesn't matter if they find out the what. And also, everyone forgets. Everyone forgets that. It's mm. not significant. What about the other year? There were loads of episodes got out, didn't they? And people yes. saw yeah. them. And I remember saying to Stephen Moffat over a drink with a few other people, I said, listen, I tried it because he was in pain about it. I said, it doesn't matter. He almost had to be physically restrained from brain that. Because, of course, it was the only thing that mattered to him at that moment in time, and it was incredibly insensitive for me to say that. But I was trying to make it better because I said, you know, and who remembers that now? No one, when people thought, I can't even remember which series it was. No one, these things are not important. It doesn't matter. Don't put things in. Nick's trying to make a point. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But people generally don't remember, and it doesn't spoil things. I don't know. I I feel like there is. You watch it through first, and you get the surprise, and you watch it again, you see it in a different light. Lights are like. um, I think it's better in a different light. You see it in a different way. But to be denied being able to watch it without knowing that twist, I think it is. Uh, I get you. Yeah, it's yeah. I mean. Although that writer is an idiot. <laughs> really? Well, I can't even say his name. It's unpronounceable. He's top of my head. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I did actually experience the Cyberman surprise completely. I hadn't seen the Radio Times, so for me, it was a big thing. Well, of course, yeah. I was talking earlier about how when I saw William um, Patrick Troughton. Yeah. Was off into nothing as a kid, and I didn't. I had no idea that episode was going like that. It, it nearly ripped my heart out. Mm. I thought Doctor Who had died. Yeah, so, yeah. What's the yeah, thing? I'm clearly mentally traumatized. By <laughs> <it>. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, 
Well, we're being given the nod yeah. uh, to wrap up. Yes. Um, so, thank you very much, Eric. Thank you very much, Nick. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. We've got through. Simon. Simon. Easily forgettable. So we've been doing this interview in the nude. Simon, actually, I'm Eric. Yes. So I think you guys are needed elsewhere. So thank you very much. Yeah, it's a pleasure.